0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We've just finished up um, a a mini-series, sort of within a series. Uh, We're going through the book of Matthew, and we've just finished up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, And we are now, after this week, going to be going into a series of stories from the book of Matthew where Jesus' power is on display. The power of his words was on display, and the power of his authority was on display when he was speaking. But now he's coming down from the mountain, and the visible power and miraculous signs and wonders and healings are going to be shown to the world, and we're going to be seeing that. This morning, we're going to focus on a little section sort of tucked away in, the, in, in between the two passages that we focused on last week. So we're going to be in Matthew 8 again. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them and follow along. Matthew eight eighteen through 22, where you can follow along on the screen. This is the Word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came, and he said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, The foxes have holes, and holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. The word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, we come to your word this morning and we pray that you would speak to us through it with power. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our thoughts, and Father, may we drink deeply from your word, which is Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we look at the passage that we're going to be focusing on this morning, verse 18 says, when Jesus had saw a crowd around him. We think back to the events that have just transpired right before he this verse, and what we have is a quick recap: is he was on the mountain preaching his sermon on the mount, and then he journeyed down. And when he reached the base of the mountain, he healed a leper. And he continued; he was going to Peter's uh, mother-in-law's home. And on his way there, he, he healed the leper at the base of the mountain. Then he went into Capernaum and he healed the centurion's servant. And we focused on that um, as one of our focuses last week. And then after that healing, he, went, he reached the home of Peter's mother-in-law and he found that she was ill with fever in bed. And he went to her and he put his hand on her and healed her of her sickness and she got up. So we have the teaching, and then we have, in quick succession with each, each one, three healings from Christ. And all these incidents fuel intrigue and curiosity among the crowd that had been with him on the mountain and sort of had been gathered to him as he's made his way into Capernaum. Whether people believed every word that he said, whether people agreed with everything he said, whether they were in awe of him or sort of in disdain, whether they had Thoughts and feelings of a love for this guy that they've, they've just met, or whether they're jealous. Jesus has the crowd's attention, and we experience this today. Um, recently, you know, we, on the news, I, I saw a headline that uh, Elon Musk decides he's selling off all his homes and he's not going to be living in a house anymore, and what happens? We hear people start tracking with this and, like, speculating about is Tesla in a financial crisis or is SpaceX going to reveal some mysterious thing that they needed boatloads of cash to to finance. People speculate. You know, you hear, um, (laughs) even this past week, news that we have another person running in the presidential election if you didn't hear Kanye West announce that he's going to be running independent under the, the birthday party. Um, and, you know, people who don't know who he is or what he's done hear a headline like that. And, and, and their words and the actions that follow those words create this attention that surrounds them. This is what's happening with Christ. In verse 18, Jesus comes out of Peter's, uh, Peter's in-law's home and he sees that a crowd has gathered around the house... And he gives orders to his disciples that they're going to head out. He calls his disciples here to separate from the spectators and crowds. So there's this pulling away. He's taking those that are his. And he's going to go away from the crowd um, for reasons that we'll learn of. Um, As he does this, though, at this junction, we are introduced to two would-be followers of Christ. Two men that approach him. And these two men are alike in a sense. They share some interest in Jesus that goes beyond that of the mass crowd. Not everyone speaks up to Christ, but these these two men engage with him. Uh, They go beyond their interest in him, and attachment to him goes beyond that of the masses. They're also alike in the fact that they make statements to Christ that both cause him to respond in a way that they were not expecting him to do. Uh, But they are different in that their personalities uh, cause them to approach Christ in a different way and cause them to say uh, different things to Christ. We're going to see that. So we're going to look at these two men this morning and draw applications from their lives. The first is a scribe. If you look at the passage, he approaches Jesus boldly and proclaims, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds good. This is exactly the type of response that you would want after you were done with your mountain preaching tour. Wouldn't you want someone to run up to you and tell you they're going to be your lifelong devotion? That they're going to hang on your every word, follow you wherever you go, be at your beck and call? This is is something that sounds great to us. We'd be tempted to rejoice in the hope of attaining a devout follower such as this man. But Jesus' words are intriguing. He responds... To this man with a solemn tone, and he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, notice here that Jesus doesn't say man. He doesn't say that man has nowhere to lay his head. He's not speaking generally here. He's using a title, the Son of Man. When I say the Son of Man, what do you think of? You think of Christ, who is the Son of Man and also the Son of God, both fully. Equally, together. This, 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 this uh, title is given to him. He actually refers to himself often in the Gospels by this title, but it actually comes up before uh, the New Testament. If you had ears to hear, like this scribe probably did, when he says, Son of Man, an alert probably goes off in his head, because in the Old Testament, there's actually prophecies referring to the Son of Man. One of the most well-known ones is actually found in Daniel chapter 7. And it says this, in Daniel 7, it's this exultant passage where you have the Son of Man coming up before the Ancient of Days. And this is, this is what Daniel 7, 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold the clouds in the heavens and like, like a Son of Man was coming. One like the Son of Man was coming rather. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him to give him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here is this great irony. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head when the foxes and the birds have a place to call home. Most of us have heard the story of Jesus' birth, how... Joseph and Mary were traveling, and they arrived in Bethlehem late one night to find out that there was no room in the inn, and so they had to make do in a cattle shed. And they ended up having Jesus born there in the barn, and he was laid in a cattle trough, and that was Jesus' birthing story. It outdoes every other birthing story that's ever taken place, but from the outset of his life, he he literally has nowhere to lay his head this is signified in his birth we we can't help but notice this right after he was born again king herod began a plot to kill him he was threatened king herod set out to kill this christ child this one that was long foretold that was going to rise with power and what do we have we have the angel of the lord appearing to joseph in a dream and he says get up take the boy the child and his mother and flee to egypt And so twice in the very opening stages of Christ's life, we have a man who has been displaced and was without a home. And by extension, his parents, his surrogate father, Joseph, and his mother are left equally without a home and in a state of unrest. Jesus isn't making the claim here, though, that he has been neglected by his father. When he says that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he is not saying something that's in conflict with what we just heard a few chapters ago. When he says that the birds of the air don't soil, uh, don't toil, rather, nor do they spin, and yet God, in His kindness, has provided for all of them. These these two passages are not in conflict with each other. Jesus' words to the scribe aren't some full disclosure policy that he'd feel guilty withholding. Jesus is making a statement declaratively about the way that his life will be, the way that he's chosen it to be. He isn't ashamed, he isn't regretful of his mission. We're told in Mark 45 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's not ashamed of that. It's helpful to remember another story from the life of Christ when he was young 12 years old his parents went to the temple in Jerusalem for the festival for the feast and on their way home they were about a days length in the toward the journey home and they didn't know where their son was they didn't know where Jesus had gone and if you know the story you know that they searched among the bags they searched with their relatives and then they turned around left the caravan and went back to Jerusalem to find Jesus sitting in the temple teaching and they said, what's going on? Didn't you know we, were, we, we had great anxiety over where you were? We had no small amount of consternation because of your actions. What's, what's going on? And Jesus responds to them and he says, what? He says, don't you know that I would be about my father's house doing my father's business? So we see here that Jesus actually did have a physical home. Throughout his childhood, he was going back to his home from the temple. That's where his parents were going. He had a home, and yet from the age of 12, again, he's saying, didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house doing my father's business? Jesus could have chosen to return, and yet he chose to be about his father's business. When Jesus tells this to the scribe that he has nowhere to lay his head, he is describing a lifestyle that he calls his disciples to emulate, if they're going to be genuine. Far from just referring to sleeping arrangements, Jesus spoke to the fact that all of his life and all of the lives of those that were going to be his were a drink offering to be poured out to the glory of God and the salvation of mankind. It's telling that after such a declaration from this scribe, we don't hear any sort of other response. Only a few seconds before he'd vowed commitment and yet upon hearing these solemn words of warning from Christ, he seems to wilt into oblivion. He's not to be heard or, or seen again. Why does he blow hot and then cold? What lead, lead led him to make such a declarative, passionate statement, only to fade as quickly as he came? Well, one of the details we're given about this man is the fact that he was a scribe. And a scribe was a man that was employed serving as an expert in Jewish law. As a scribe, he would have been accustomed historically in that day to a quiet, easy life, a life of honor and prestige, a respectable life among the faithful. And something to, to fix in our minds, he would have been used to a life that looked different from others but where those differences elevated rather than humbled. He was used to being Sought out, and is his advice honored? In the Gospels, scribes were usually presented as having bad character, and they're often paired with the Pharisees. It's also helpful to remember that just at the end of chapter 7, remember Jesus spoke with power and authority, not as the scribes. Even though we aren't supplied with any details that are specific as to where, why he, he, he doesn't apparently join Jesus. What's clear from the passage is that the scribe has approached Jesus because of carnal and earthly ambitions, not selfish and heavenly desires. His desires have been for himself at the end of the day. Um, he's coming to Christ because of what he thinks joining this movement will give to him whether he longed for supernatural powers to heal or greater ability in his teaching, or whether he just wants to rub shoulders with the disciples and Jesus for this moment in the spotlight, we don't know. But what is clear is he's ultimately about himself. If he had been truly devoted to Jesus Christ, then what is it to endure hardship alongside of him? We think of Paul, and we can't help but think of some of the things Paul said. He said in Philippians, I count... All things is loss in view of the surpassing surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and might be found in him. There's the story of the pearl of great price. This man who wants this thing, and he is willing to give everything, everything he has, everything he owns, to obtain this one thing that is better than it all, the only thing that really truly matters. And so though we don't have sort of the, the end of the story, you could say, the fact that we don't hear anything about this man in response leads us to think that, believe that this man came to Christ for something short of who Christ actually was in obtaining him, him alone. There are a couple points for us to take away from Jesus' interactions with this man. First, I think we all need to admit that we care about appearances. Each and every one of us in this room, each and every one of us watching online, care about the way that we appear. And here's the first lesson. Jesus does not care about appearances. He does not care. We see this from a different a couple different angles. Jesus does not care about the appearance of having followers flock to him. Remember at the beginning we said what what would be better than coming down from a great sermon and having somebody run up and say they're gonna be a lifelong devotee? It's great. The appearance is great. The truth is another matter. He doesn't care about the appearances of the numbers. Numbers have never been a criteria that inform how well he's carrying out his father's will. Similarly, Jesus is not content with a man who looks the part without actually being the part. So the, the, I, I've said two things about appearance. One, he doesn't care about the way it makes him look as a teacher. And two, he isn't content with how it's making this man look. He knows the reality of this man's life, this man has a future. And it's not a good one if he keeps living for appearance and he's willing to say that to the man. J.C. Ryle says this about the passage, nothing in fact has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who's willing to make a little profession and talk a little bit about his experience. And then this, it has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength and that there might be a great quantity of mere outward religion yet while there is very little real grace. Let us remember this. Let us keep back nothing from young professors and inquirers after Christ, those who begin to come after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretenses. Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end. At the end. But let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross along the way. This is a truth that the church would do well to embrace. It is a truth that we must embrace. It's my belief that we're entering into a time where God will prune His church. He'll use trials to peel back what is on the surface and to reveal the reality of our commitments to Him. We're headed into a time where we're going to see a lot of fat cut off the Western church. And it's essential that we allow God's word to be the thing that cuts us. Scripture uses this analogy. God disciplines those he loves. We're grafted into the vine which is Christ and yet there is pruning along the way. It's, a, it's an analogy for sanctification, right? Growth in our godliness. It's, a, it's an eradication of the sinful man that is in all of our hearts by nature and, and adopting more of God christ's nature in us right Uh, becoming more like christ and so we ought to embrace god's word cutting us so that the knife of cultural opposition will not cut us from the vine that's that's the reality that we're talking about here and jesus speaks plainly to this scribe the scribe did not fool christ not with all his extroverted passionate words he didn't fool jesus Jesus saw straight through this man's faux zeal and called him out. Jesus does not care about appearances. He never stops attacking the Pharisees for washing the outside of the cup while the inside remains dirty. And for us, especially in, in the, the, the mire of the culture we live every day where we all, if we're honest, know how much people care about appearances. We must discipline our minds to be more like Christ. We must, if we are to see the power of God, discipline ourselves to think and act more like Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we remember when Jesus says he had nowhere to lay his head, those conditions were kindly extended to all his followers as well. Though he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, we also know that that was the call that he called his disciples into. That's, in fact, what he's saying to this scribe that's approaching him. He's calling him into that lifestyle. So the second thing for us to consider is, do you consider the cost? Have you considered the cost? Do you recognize that the life of every disciple of Christ is one where he has said, there will be nowhere for you to lay your head? There's a couple of examples from my recent readings. Um, I'm reading... Um, some early church history right now and there's a group of men that are called the, the early church fathers and two of these men are Basil and Gregory and they're friends and they're about the same age and I read a historical account of the two of them when they moved to the city of Athens and I thought it was helpful um, and I wanted to share it this morning these two men moved in their mid-twenties to, the, to, to Athens to study as students And when they moved there, this is what they wrote. The time was full of dangerous distractions, feasts, theaters, assemblies, wine parties. This is just a couple hundred years after Christ. Feasts, theaters, assemblies, wine parties. The point being, the things that they're dealing with, the struggle against flesh and blood has not changed. It's helpful to remember that. Because of that, Gregory and his friend resolved to renounce all of these things and to allow themselves, and here's, here's, here's the thing, and to allow themselves to only know two roads. I haven't been to Athens, but I know that it's not a small town. Even in Christ's day, it's a city. It's a center of, of urban society, right? That's where Paul goes. It's where the, all the smart people are debating, right? This is a big city. And these two Christian young men who are studying to become bishops in the church resolved that they will only know two roads, one that led to the church and its holy teachers and the other which would take them to their university lectures. And I want to say, I don't remember, I want to say it was like six years that they were in Athens. And you think about that. You think about that level of resolve we say, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, they probably had a a co-op on the way and fresh fruit. And yeah, they could do that. But, you know, I need to drive. That's besides the point. The point is the resolve to hold oneself to the holiness of God. The resolve that they aren't going to be at home in Athens, though that's where they find themselves living. That that's not going to be the place that they, they lay their head. And in fact, they're going to keep themselves from those temptations by only going on these two roads. It's a powerful story. Um, There's another story later in time. This is just a couple hundred years um, ago. William Carey uh, moved from the UK to uh, Calcutta in India and later to Serampore. And um, if you know anything about William Carey's life, it was, I read the book, Ali and I agreed it's sort of depressing. Um, The first six or seven years, he doesn't have a single convert Um, his family suffers incredibly. And beyond not having a single convert, he doesn't even have anybody from back in Britain that's willing to join him. It's this call to send missionaries over, send missionaries over, and, and the Napoleonic wars are going on, but no one comes, and he's virtually by himself, and he doesn't have anyone come to faith. And when he reaches his beginning of his 30s, his mid-30s, things start to change. He's, you know, God opens doors and brings people into the situation that allow him to get to know some of, the, some of the, the rulers of the town. And he becomes known for his ability to translate. He learns languages along the way. And so things are starting to build. And then more people start coming. And, and then he gets a job teaching at a college that had been started where he makes, like, 1,500 pounds a year when he started at a pace of four pounds a year at the beginning of his ministry. And so you see how God is blessing him. And then after, it was about the 19th or 20th year that he was there, um, we don't know exactly what happened, but it's suspected that somebody who was uh, in the, uh, jealous from the caste system didn't like what he was teaching and started a fire in the paper mill and burned it it ended up being burned to the ground uh, they fought to save it they thought that it was, had been saved after hours of carrying buckets of water and carrie and some of his associates actually left to get some rest somebody opened a window and all the air came back into that paper mill and it went up in flames and with it went all of his bible translations Went with it went all the brass lettering that they had paid over years and years to, to make so that they could translate the Bible into four or five different languages by that point. Um, up in flames went the books that he had, the encyclopedia books that he had spent his lifetime there writing. He never rewrote those. They were gone forever. Everything that he had spent his life on went up in flames that night. And this is what he said. He said, the Lord has smitten us, and he has the right to do so. We do, not deserve, his cor- we do deserve his corrections, and I wish to submit to his sovereign will, nay, cordially to acquiesce therein, and to examine myself rigidly to see what in me has contributed to this evil. And then he goes on to talk, and I didn't pull it out of the book, but he goes on to talk about how God in this, taking his 20 years of life, 20 years of work from him was reminding him that he is nothing and that this is not his home. That this is not, he he said, I was tempted to believe that I had started to accomplish something. And God in one night took it all away. Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In this life, there's nowhere for us to lay our heads save Jesus Christ himself. The first lesson which Jesus gives us entering into his school is to deny ourselves to take up our crosses and to follow him. And so first we had said Jesus doesn't care about appearance. Second we said remember that Jesus is calling us to a cost. Have you considered? Have you considered the cost? Do you recognize that there's a cost? Or do you not see it because your level of commitment only goes so far as to how it will benefit you? That's, that's where this scribe was. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus' words. But it was interpreted through how is this man going to benefit me instead of how may I lay down my life to, to exalt him? Are you committed to foregoing beds of ease and comfort in this present life so that you might follow Jesus? Moving on to the second, the second man, he's called the disciple, and it doesn't mean that he was a part of the twelve. If you notice that he said another one of the disciples in the text, it says another of the disciples said, um, perhaps indicating that this scribe considered himself a disciple of Christ. Uh, the, the second man is, is in the crowd, and Jesus extends to him a call to follow, and we see him say, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father." Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. In modern speech, what this man was likely saying is the fact that he, he felt that his father was aged and he had an obligation to stay and care for his father until the time that he had passed, until the time that he was buried. and Then he could go and follow Christ. In some regards, this man seems more mature, more measured than the first. He hears Jesus' call, and he does signal a desire to follow with his answer. But as Ecclesiastes says, there is a time for everything... And at this point in this man's life, his duty was to care for his father. And was this not, after all, a worthy reason to delay? Think about it. We have the commandments, the fifth commandment. You'll honor your father and mother that your days might be long in the earth. It's always been the people of God that have championed care for those that are old and care for bodies after they're dead because we believe that when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just save our soul, but he also has saved us in our bodies. And we, we know the scripture teaches that we're buried in the ground, and yes, our bodies will undergo decay, but at the end of time, God is going to raise our bodies. He's going to give us new bodies that are perfect, and we will have those for eternity. So Christians have always sought to treat the body with care and with respect. Despite the appearance of loyalty towards his Father, this second man hears Jesus' called to follow, and yet he lacks the zeal to do the work that Jesus has called him to do. And therefore, he puts forth a plausible plea. He, he must care for his Father. And yet, the saying is true that an unwilling mind never lacks an excuse. An unwilling mind never lacks an excuse. If you don't want to do it, you'll find a way to get out of it. If the scribe foolishly overcommitted before thinking, then what we see here in the second man is this disciple's undercommitment after thinking. Whereas with the first man, we saw a foolish urgency that came as a result of not counting the cost of commitment. Here with the second man, we see a hesitancy from more clearly discerning what following after Christ would would cost him. And not being sure that he wants to make that commitment or make that commitment right now. Jesus' response again is perfect for the need of the moment. He says, follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead. Now, it's generally agreed that when Jesus says this, it's sort of a confusing statement. What's he mean? The dead to bury their dead. Certainly he's not, um, he's not, dis- he's not putting down respect for the body right he's not saying to allow people that uh, pass away to just lay on the ground right how does a dead person bury someone else who's dead well it's generally agreed that jesus is using the term dead here in two different ways two different senses the first is those who would be spiritually dead dead in their sins as ephesians 2 would speak to And and the second sense is that it denotes those who are physically dead So Jesus isn't making any sort of disparaging comments about burials. Rather, he's saying, let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. He's making the point that all general tasks of life can be performed by anyone. While the gospel, while discipleship, can only be carried out by those who are called. This is not a unique instance in Scripture. You can kind of think, well, that's kind of harsh. I mean, why... That, that doesn't seem like that's something God would do, not allow a man to care for you know, his, his aging, perhaps dying father. That just, seems, that just seems wrong. It goes against our own sense of morality, and yet Scripture checks us, because if we know the Old Testament, we know that the Nazarites were set, aside, set apart for God, and they were disavowed to mourn for parents that died, or to be a part of their burial process. Likewise, if, if you've read through Numbers recently, you know that um, the priests were not allowed, and especially the high priest was not allowed, to go near anyone that's dead. In Numbers uh, chapter 2, I think it is, um, not even the high priest was able to go. Uh, uh, 21. Leviticus, rather, number 6, Leviticus 21. The high priest was not able to defile himself to be around his parents. It's in such passages that we're reminded of Christ's teaching when he said, He who loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross daily and follow after me is not worthy of me. Love and devotion to God must be preferred before love and devotion to parents, even though One's love for parents is a great and essential part of Christianity. That is plainly taught. It is a great and essential part, and yet our love for God and our love for Jesus Christ must not be penultimate in our lives. It must be ultimate. May we be warned. Many are hindered and kept away from true godliness by an over-concern for other things that are good. In the case of this man, it was his own family. Jesus teaches us that we must not neglect our devotion to God for other things that we perceive as needed or good. He alone must have superiority in our lives. Christ is not fooled or pleased when we employ righteous-sounding rationale in order to pursue our desires rather than to fully commit our way unto him. So the call is issued forth to this disciple and the call is issued forth to us, and it's very straightforward. Commit your way unto the Lord, and He will make your path straight. Don't claim to show grace at the expense of the holiness and righteousness of God. Don't align yourself or join yourself to movements that rage against God and shake their fist at Him because they're promoting a couple of virtues. Don't neglect the spiritual care over your wife and your children because you're always working so that you can provide. Don't compromise your commitment to the truth of God's Word for the sake of having more clout and better authority in the kingdom of God, for the kingdom of God. Don't study theology so that you can teach when you haven't sat under the teaching of scripture as its student you want to know what going and bearing our father and then coming after christ looks like it's all these types of things all these types of excuses i want to do this good thing at the expense of doing actually what's needed and what is most honoring to god don't be so as naive so naive rather as to think that satan only employs bad things things that look scary, things that look dangerous, things that outwardly look sinful, to tempt and distract us as Christians. Satan is happy to entice us with many good things as long as they keep us from the only one great thing. There's one final warning and challenge that I'd like us to think about this morning, and actually... Um, It's from the parallel passage in Luke's gospel and we won't do this a whole lot going through Matthew but I think it's important. Um, We're told in Matthew 9, 61 there was a third person in this group of men that approached Christ. Another said to him, I will follow you Lord but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit For the kingdom of God and of course this challenge and this rebuke to this third man equally applies to the first two that came to him no one who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God this is a strong warning and so what do you what do you do if you feel like you're the first man in the story what do you do if you feel like you're the second man in the story or maybe you're caught in the middle part of you wants to run to Christ and another part of you sees the sacrifice and is held back by fear or worry doubt there are many many living in this tension today many who want to be joined but well, I don't know are held back one foot in one foot out courting dropping leaving what do you do Christ says no one Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Go, go to Zor, don't look back. She turned and looked back. What do you do? Well, you, it's simple. You run toward Jesus Christ. Notice, listen, notice that Jesus doesn't tell any of the men in this passage that they cannot follow him. We might read that over top of the text or you might feel that way because he's responded to them with with a hit. He's checked their hearts with the right medicine for sober reflection. But he doesn't tell any of these men that he doesn't want them or that they're not allowed to follow. Both of these first men and and this this third man in in Luke um, can follow Christ if they simply move their feet if they simply decide that what Jesus is saying is worth it and they are still going to follow after him. Jesus promises that those who seek him will find and those who knock will be received into the house. Now you may give all sorts of excuses as to why God's word isn't true, why Jesus' promises aren't true or at least you don't feel like they're true for you. You may feel like you've tried following before, and it hasn't worked out. You might say, I wish I could believe, but I can't. Or I just don't see the promises coming true in my life like they have in your life. And if this is the case, that the reality is, the reality is, despite what you may feel, the reality is is that you're choosing to stand and Jesus walks by and you do not walk after him. I'm not saying that you won't have many excuses that could be put forth. We've seen a few excuses already this morning, but Jesus meets them. And the scripture says, let God be true in every man a liar. There will come a day when this promise is made exceedingly clear in the throne room of God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of our Savior what is true. And for many, it will be a confession to their own condemnation. So consider the cost. Then having come to a realization of that cost, move, follow Christ. This is not some super spiritual, mystical, mental act. This is, this is reading your scriptures. This is memorizing the scriptures. This is saying, Lord, I don't, I don't in my life feel like the scripture is true for me and wrestling with God in prayer. This is serving others. This is forcing yourself to live a life that is not focused on yourself. Just be resolved every day that you are going to be the disciple who has nowhere to lay your head so that at the end of time, when we journey from here to the next life, the life that really matters, the life that has no pain, suffering, or end of heaven, God may welcome you into that kingdom and lift your head. Jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it this is his word this is his promise let's pray Heavenly Father we pray that you would cause us to be those that run after you Father may you cause us to be the men and women that are willing to give all for the sake of taining the one thing that really matters. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and your promises to cling to. And Father, I pray that our lives would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.